everyone, and welcome to the Worldonomics podcast, brought to you by the UQES diversity team. I'm Liam. I'm Bronwyn. And I'm Elise. And each week, we bring in a new guest to talk about the issues that matter. As always, before we get started today, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we record this podcast, and would like to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Today, I want to start off by issuing a content warning for this episode, as we will be mentioning and talking about domestic violence. We've got an amazing guest this week, Femin Ahmed, who isn't here to talk about economics, but about her non-for-profit, which raises money for the Women's Legal Service. Today, Femin has raised over $20,000 for survivors of domestic violence. Could you please introduce yourself, Femin? Hi guys, um, I'm Femin. Thanks so much for having me. This is very cool. Um, just like what we like to ask everyone, just as sort of like a you know icebreaker, is um, what's your quarantine sanity tip? Um, I want to give an opposite tip of something that has made me go insane. So I have a nine-year-old sister, and I introduced her to High School Musical like two weeks ago, and now ever since then, like she's just constantly playing High School Musical songs. And it's all I have stuck in my head, literally 24-7, and it's actually driving me insane. So if anyone has kids at home, just don't do that. (laughs) Don't introduce them to it. I hold the power in my family because I'm the youngest. So, you know, I am the one who controls the high school musical if it gets (laughs) Um, So can you please tell us a bit about your non-for-profit, For Men Makes? Um, So how did you start it? What's the story behind it? Yep, so... Last year um, in July, I was meant to be, well, I did graduate um, for my degree. So I studied law law and arts at UQ. So I graduated mid-year last year and I had a job lined up to start from January this year. So I basically had a six month gap in between. And in that six months, like so many of my friends that were also graduating at a similar time, were gonna go traveling for like five or six months of it. And I couldn't do that because of my family situation at home, which involved domestic violence. And because of that, I felt like I had to stay at home to like look after my family. Anyway, so because of that, I was just, for like the first half of the year, I was just really, really worried that I'd be really bored for those six months. So I needed to think of something to do. And then, yeah, I thought of the idea of like, cause I really like sewing. So I thought of the idea of um, starting to make, make sew stuff and then sell them and donate the profits to um, charity and I didn't know at the time what charity I wanted to um, donate to and then um, sometime in I think it was May last year I actually went to Women's Legal Service so for context for listeners Women's Legal Service which is the charity that all my money goes to is um, a legal legal service that provides free legal advice to women facing domestic violence so there's a lot of legal issues when you're trying to escape domestic violence so they provide free advice for that so I went there in May last year to try and get some advice from my family and when I went there basically I just saw how under-resourced it was I got I was there with my friend we got turned away we were like the seventh group of people that got turned away that night and we saw this one woman get turned away who when she was told that they were at capacity for that night, she just burst out into tears. And me and my friends who were there, we just like couldn't stop thinking about that woman and like, what was she going home to? Because she couldn't get that advice. Like she might've, like hypothetically, she could have 
you know, gotten beaten up that night or like, who knows, really. And so, yeah, these services are just so, so, so important. So when I had the idea of donating to like some sort of service, that was, Women's Legal Service was the service that I thought of. And then, yeah, it started from there. It was originally meant to be a six-month project, but it ended up, I like to still do it now on the, on the side of my full-time work. So, yeah. That is like an incredible, like inspiring story, like just seeing something wrong in the world and then, you know, putting energy into actually like, trying to do something about that. I think that's incredible. Um, so, so what were your goals when you first started Femin Makes and like, what are they now? Has there been sort of any evolution in them over the past year since you started? Um, yeah, definitely. So when I first started, it was mainly just meant to be killing my boredom. And obviously I wanted to raise money. I was skeptical of even being able to raise $1,000. So I did want to raise money, but it also wasn't like a huge, um, I wasn't hugely optimistic about how much I could raise. And then as soon as I started doing it full time, as soon as I stopped um, studying, it just went like, it just exploded pretty much. It by Like in a few weeks time, I was making like 30 hats per week or something and just raising like a ridiculous amount, like, at one point I was raising like a thousand dollars per week and as it started getting bigger and bigger obviously my goals for like how much I wanted to raise kept on going up and up and up um and now I don't really have like a I don't really have a certain goal of how much I want to raise like an end point but something that has definitely changed concretely is like my ability think that I can actually raise awareness about the issue because uh, like at the beginning it was mostly just like my friends that were buying hats and they already knew about the issue because like I told them what was happening for me in my life but then as like more and more people I don't know started buying hats and they started when you go and buy a hat you donate on a certain link my fundraising page and when you go on that link you basically see a story of why I chose women's legal service and I think from that story and a lot of my Instagram posts as well, people who don't realise that it's an issue start thinking about it. And a lot of people have messaged me being like, wow, I actually didn't know. And people that who yeah, wouldn't ordinarily have thought about it have donated more than they need to because they really start, start feeling for the issue. Um, and as time has gone on, I, I guess I've started posting more about my story slowly on my Instagram as well because I just want people to, yeah, be more aware of it and be more conscious of it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the main goal that has changed. I mean, it's certainly amazing to see the huge impact that you've had, like you said. And is there anything that you wish more people knew about your project or the issue of domestic violence? In terms of my project personally, I, I do want people to be conscious of the fact that like, at the moment, you only know once you go onto my page that I have experienced domestic violence myself. So, for anyone listening, like, I have experienced domestic violence myself. And I guess this project, in the six months that I ran it, while, like, my like domestic violence in my home was really bad at that time, and I felt like I had no control over the situation in my house. And so, while that was going on, my the project of men makes was kind of my control it was like some sort of way to exercise my agency and feel like I can help the cause generally while I was feeling like completely helpless 
for helping my own situation. Um, in terms of like the issue of domestic violence generally, I think a lot of people would know the stats. So the stats are pretty much almost every week, there's an average of one woman that's killed per week um, in Australia for domestic violence. And on top of that, that's like the pinnacle. Like if someone gets killed, that's a pinnacle. That's the worst situation that could happen. But on top of that, there's obviously women, like thousands of women, hundreds or tens of thousands, I would say, in Australia that are experiencing like um, lower levels than death, but they're experiencing everyday domestic violence. When, like for someone that hasn't experienced domestic violence, you don't realise how families that are experiencing it, it literally permeates every aspect of your life. Um, there's just so many things that you're hypersensitive to when you're li living in a house of domestic violence, which people don't realise. So to give some examples, um, when we were still in the abusive household, when I would go out, I'd always have my phone out with me on the table and it would never be on silent because just in case my mum texted me or called me about something that had happened because there had been times where I hadn't had my phone out and I'd have like so many missed calls to my mum and I hadn't known that stuff was happening. Um, me and my brother would have to coordinate at times so that to make sure that we weren't both out at the same time to make sure one of us was home at once in case something happened. Um, there was times where I had to keep my door open in the like when I went to sleep just in case I heard something in the middle of the night. So it's just things like that where literally like no matter what you're doing it affects your actions. You're always having to be careful. You're always having to feel like you're in a protective mode um, if you're a child, as a, a child in the family. Um, on top of that, like, and I guess basically related to that, a lot of people have this idea that domestic violence only affects, like, people of low socioeconomic class or, you know, people that live, live in areas that, are low, that have a low socioeconomic status. And it's not that. It literally can affect anyone. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or you're educated or un you're uneducated. These attitudes that form domestic violence actually permeate all of that. And it's actually super common to have domestic violence in um, families where the woman is really educated, like they're doctors or like my mom's an academic at UQ. Like it's, people have this idea that it's only, it doesn't affect people that they know if they're in a high class and that's just completely wrong. Um, just to give an example, like last year I was, um, I can't remember when it was now actually, but I was doing a top tier a clerkship at a top tier firm and literally the night before I started my clerkship the police were at my house and you just never like if you're at you know Eagle Street you just think that everyone's like super privileged and you just don't see behind closed doors you don't know what's happening and yeah I think that's a super big misconception that a lot of people have. On top of that I guess the main thing is like there's so many barriers for people facing domestic violence to leave and even after you leave you're constantly facing barriers like there's just the legal system is just so prohibitive like lawyers are like a minimum of $300 an hour it's ridiculous and you need to get a lawyer once you leave because you need to sort out parenting if there's kids involved you need to sort out financials otherwise you have zero money in your pocket like unless you go into complete hiding after you leave a domestic violence relationship and you literally flee to somewhere that's like a complete remote town and you have enough money in your bank account to survive, you need to get through the legal system. And that's just like a huge barrier. Um, 
So the reason that I appreciate Women's Legal Service so much is not only because they provide free advice to um, domestic violence victims, but they also do a lot of law reform work to try and make the system better because that's what we need to change because at the moment the system is stopping so many people from getting out of those relationships. Um, so, yeah, just very, very important work. Yeah, sadly, like you said, there are so many um, misconceptions about domestic violence and I'm so sorry to hear that you and your family have had to go through that. Um, and as a follow-up question, do you know how much violence against women cost the economy each year? Um, yeah, I can't, I think it was $22 million per year, is that right? I think it was $27 billion. Oh yes, that's right, sorry, yeah, I was like, that seems really small. But the stats that I have in front of me on top of that is that, so that's how much it costs the economy overall, and that mm. provides services like, like Women's Legal Service, um, for like the courts, like funding the family courts and how much domestic violence that they have to deal with, but also like emergency services um, to, that provide accommodation and all of that sort of stuff, which is important like for direct effects of domestic violence. But then the thing that surprised me, well, I guess it doesn't surprise me, but it, I think it should, should shock people that on top of that direct effect, there's also an indirect effect, which is the second generation of kids that grow up in domestic violence households so that those second generational impacts from domestic violence cost the Australian economy 333 million dollars per year which is pretty crazy but it just doesn't surprise me at all when I think about the fact that in my family like we have I'm one of three siblings and in the past year we between us three siblings we would have easily spent over two thousand five hundred dollars on counselling just from domestic violence and that's in one year and yeah there's just like so many things like there's days that I've had to take off work because of how I've been affected like if you add up all these things it adds up and it's not something that only is lasting like exactly when it's happening it's second generational impacts that basically last your whole life um and like your reduced productivity from that and the trauma that you're suffering from that it's just it costs the economy so much and obviously like the economy isn't like the main reason that we should be dealing with it because people are dying and that's like that in itself is um, important enough to like deal with but the amount that it costs the economy is just like a backup um backup argument of why it needs to be dealt with yeah of course i think that really just shows how important the work you do is the fact that it's like it's not just an economic cost it's a social cost it's a psychological cost it's like it it's just so it just has such ripple effect throughout you know everyone's lives and so you know and I think that's why your work is just so you know important and so amazing and so I want to ask you about that is you know what is like the logistics behind starting a not-for-profit because it's it's not just going to be a very simple oh here's something I don't like in the world I'm going to raise money now. There's like, there's got to be, you know, behind the scene problems and, you know, it's not as simple as people realise. Yeah. Um, when I first started, because I didn't think it was going to be very big, it wasn't really hard logistically. It was just a matter of creating a fundraising page and I started getting messages from my friends and I'd message my friends and be like, oh, do you want a hat? These are the fabrics that I have. And then after it started getting a bit more popular, I was like, okay, I need a system. So I'm in Instagram. I had, have all my fabrics on my Instagram story 
and it's just like a whole like I think when people think of me running it they think of just like the sewing hat suspect and it's actually so much more work than that it's just like this whole life cycle of like I guess admin work so like it starts with me like posting on my Instagram saying that I'm taking orders and especially now that I'm working full-time as well I have to really calculate how much time I will have how many hats I'll be able to make so I basically calculate that and be like okay um, I can make five hats this weekend. So I'll post on my Instagram being like taking five orders for hats. And when I post, I have to time the post and um, to be on a night that I actually have time to like look at my phone. Um, and so then I take the orders, I put it into a spreadsheet, um, which I have made, which is very color coded and I'm very proud of it. Um, and then from that spreadsheet, I will prioritize and basically triage which hats I will make first because sometimes people have things like birthdays and stuff and they need it done by a certain date. Um, and then I make hats and I, I like to make a lot of hats in one go because it makes the process more efficient. Um, and then after I've made the hat, I'll message the customer to say that their hat is done and then I'll arrange to either post it to them or um, they, can, they can pick it up. And then the post office aspect is annoying as well because I have to go to the post office and like get the thing. Um, so yeah, it's actually like a whole process, but I've basically made it as efficient as I can to be a one person job. Um, like the process is very standardized and I try to do things in bulk because it takes less time. In terms of challenges that I face, and I guess related to the point of how much work it is, um, I think the biggest challenge that I've actually faced is just setting down boundaries for myself and knowing when to stop um, so when I was doing it full-time in my six months off I basically made hats between um, nine and three then I'd pick my little sister up from school at three and that was the only time I gave myself to make hats and, and that was on weekdays and on weekends I wouldn't make hats at all I'd socialize um, otherwise it would just be really easy to like do it all the time and even though it is fun like I enjoy sewing it's still like if you're doing the same thing over and over again, it becomes something that drains you and I don't want it to become something that ties me up. Like I want to keep enjoying it. Um, and especially now as well, especially because I'm working full time and hats is something that I do on the weekend. But on top of that, I need to fit in like seeing my friends and spending time with family. So it's very hard to fit everything in. Um, so I really have to force myself to take breaks sometimes. Like, um, about a month ago I made like 15 hats on a weekend and that's like on a weekend when I'm working on either side of that and then and I have this thing in my head where I'm like oh yeah now I can raise more and more and more but then I'm like no I have to stop like I need time to just rest and so some weekends I just don't take any orders which is also good taking a break because then it makes me excited for when I will next do it as opposed to just um tiring me out. Is there any way we can get more involved? Um there's not really like at the moment it's pretty much like a one-person show and I it's gonna like it would just take more effort for me to try and create a system where I'd have to delegate it and then like coordinate other people um so I have opted to to keep it just me at the moment and a lot of people have offered to like say like oh we can help so and stuff but it's just like too much effort to try and outsource it if that makes sense and there is also the element of like it for me it's like a personal project and I don't really want to um get rid of that personal connection so I think the main like the main my people have helped and it's, it's just been so good like this whole project has shown me how kind people are like people are so will willing to share like when they get when they buy a hat they like post photos of themselves they tell their friends about it 
Um, a lot of people have donated me fabric. Like this one girl who I don't even know literally emailed all these fabric shops for me to try and get donations of fabric and I don't even know her. It's just like so nice. Um, so yeah, the main thing is just donating if you can or buying a hat if you can, but also just telling your friends, like posting about it if you buy one. Yeah, that's the main way to help. Yeah, well, that was my last question, um, but you've kind of answered it. Um, but just lastly, so I know above you said that um, this was initially just a six-month project before you started full-time work. Yeah. How long do you intend to keep it going for? Um, I honestly don't know the answer to that question because at the moment, the job that I'm doing this year is actually it's like quite good for hours, so I have a lot of time. Um, outside of work but next year I'm going to be working at a firm that might have long hours so I might not have as much time um, to make hats but even when that happens my intention is to just like make hats when I have time so always have it going on in the side but just yeah um, setting boundaries for myself and just doing what I can but I don't know I don't want to do it forever because at some point I want to be able to like I think raising money is really important but for people that um, have like first-hand experience of domestic violence and also in my case I have a law degree and like that is very helpful for trying to change the system um, so at some point I want to convert my efforts to like actually trying to create change directly and working with groups that can do that as opposed to just raising money um, so yeah that's my long-term goal but for the moment for Minmix is staying <laughs> for a while probably Hey, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast for Min. Um, it was really incredible to hear what your project has achieved. Um, and if you have been inspired by For Min Makes, please donate if you can. Uh, we'll leave all the details in the podcast description. I know I will be commissioning a hat for my little brother. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, guys. Just really, really appreciate it. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you again next week.